Hello, and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps, speaking to you from finally, once again, sunny Austin, Texas. I'm here today just with Brian Bacek. Hi, Brian. Hello. And Ryan Hemmer. Hey, Ryan. Hi, friends. And uh, we are Sans Robin today. She has family responsibilities this Saturday morning, so it's just the dudes. Um, and Ryan gave a presentation uh, a couple of years ago on Rene Girard and Lonergan's scale of values that I thought was pretty helpful. So we asked him to uh, try to remember what he said, and he's going to share that with us today. And then um, Brian has our treasures old and new. But before we get to business, um, we don't have any like formal frivolity stuff, but I'm just curious, like, What's been going on with you guys? What's uh, what you've been watching, listening to? What's been happening in life, Brian? What are you I, up to? I've been uh, trying to distract myself from the <laughs> the catastrophic events of the world by deep diving back into uh, TV that my girlfriend has not seen, but I have seen, and uh, new TV actually. So I've been. I finally started watching The Good Place, which I like oh, yeah. very much. Yeah, everybody discovered The Good Place like in the last ten days. I feel like it's weird. Yeah, it was maybe it was maybe two weeks ago for me. Um, it corresponded with the start of a break for us, uh, like reading week style for Canadian Thanksgiving. And uh, yeah, the, the the praises that have been heaped on it are accurate. I think. Oh, I don't know. Have you oh, have you two watched it? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I have. We just watched the first episode of the third season last night. Nice. I'm still, uh, I'm towards the end of the first season. And I know there are many developments that I have not yet had, frankly, had spoiled for me, which is lucky. Oh, or, wow. uh, yeah, I know. It's a, it's a charmed life I lead. True. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, what, else, uh, what else are you watching? Uh, so Meg, Megan has never seen, my girlfriend has never seen Parks and Rec. And ah. so we have been, I think we're, we're in the middle of the election season. Uh, I don't. I want to say that's the third, maybe. I, it's you. You start watching it on Netflix. Hemmer would know. Hemmer has that show backwards and forwards. It's a great show. Yeah, I had. Do, I, does, I, does the comedy land for Torontonians? It does. Yeah. The I think actually, especially because of the differences culturally between Canada and the U.S., the Ron Swanson uh, sort of satirical elements are actually even funnier. Okay. Yeah, it's been, she's been really digging it. And I have never actually seen the final season uh, just because of happenstance. It's still something I've never seen. So I'm very much looking forward to getting to that. Probably good, actually. They they landed it. I've heard it's great. That's another one that I've had miraculously i've had very very little spoiled from so i'm i'm looking forward to to finally getting to that and and same creator right it's um uh, uh, michael, yes yeah michael sure sure i think yeah. Yeah. same showrunner generally yeah it's uh I, I didn't even think about that but you're right i when i was at when we were actually all at lonergan on the edge sean brown was uh, twisting my arm to finally actually step up and watch the good place and that was one of the things that sparked me to do it, and that was one of his selling points, was we really like Parks and Rec, and uh, all right, on yeah, it's been. Oh, I find it to be uh, such a radically different format and and a almost radically different form of of comedy that I I really can't detect a lot of overlap to lead me to conclude that they came from the same mind. Yeah, I mean, they're both um, they're both sort of sweet. So. Well, that's yeah, true. They yeah. seem. I think. I think they have a fundamental trust in the decency of people. That's probably. I was, I was really pleased by the um, the fundamental sweetness of Big Mouth, which I watched while I had the stomach flu for four days. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. Because I started watching it, and I was like, "Well, this is filthy." Um, yep. Oh, it's it's dark. It's but uh, but but at bottom, like actually, like uh, almost a kind of Judd Apatow level of. Yeah. Um, of schmaltziness, which I, I really like. I think it's pretty great. Um, yeah, John Mulaney's uh, best sort of humanist instincts, I guess, are on display. Uh, and and Nick Kroll's too, actually. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, I, I think, sometimes are harder to detect, but are definitely yeah. there. Um, 
did you finish the second season for it and did you uh, deep dive? I think I did, yeah. Um, you know, I was uh I was pretty sick, so I just barreled right through them on the couch and uh, you know, between the the only uh, the only like white flour products we had in the house were saltine crackers, which is appropriate, but also uh, toaster waffles. Ooh. So I ate an like an entire package and a half of toaster waffles over four days because it was it was the only thing that wanted to stay down. Um, John's John's uh, theory of wellness when he's sick is um, kill it with calories. Yeah, which is is great until you have the stomach flu, and then it's you're you're at an impasse. Clearly, that did not stop you. No, it didn't actually. No, I got through. I got through those toaster plain toaster waffles. It was pathetic. Um, yeah, R- Ryan, you sent me a text earlier this week uh, indicating uh, uh, a small cataclysm. Uh, can you tell me, can you tell our listeners about that because it's real funny. Oh, uh, so I, I, you know, I stay at home with my daughter all week. And she's two and um, does what two-year-olds do. And what two-year-olds do is wait till you go to the bathroom and then um, pull out of their little pockets the little travel-sized things of uh, Vaseline. And then uh, they do technically put some on the lips, but mostly what they do is uh, just put globs and globs of it in their hair. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, if you've ever seen those... um, those Dawn commercials for like, you know, oh, the Exxon Valdez uh, oil <laughs> spill occurred and all the penguins got soaked in crude oil and it's this tragedy, but there's Dawn soap and that Dawn can, can wash it all away. Um, well, it turns out that that is uh, really the only solution for uh, petroleum-based products in hair. <laughs> uh, so having exhausted all possible avenues of tear-free solutions, uh, we ended up having to, to trot out the dawn. Uh, but the thing that they don't tell you in the commercials uh, is that the animal will panic <laughs> and stole the two-year-old. Uh, and so there was, uh, there was much weeping and uh, gnashing of hair. Oh, that's very nice. It's uh, amazing. Yeah, but it's it's out, uh, and yeah. and her hair has a nice silky sheen to it as a result. Um, I bet she but, smells like yeah. uh, like a forest or something, or or clean dishes. You know, one, one or the or other. Two. Uh, yeah, that's was, amazing. That was, uh, was a highlight. Oh man, um, my my eighteen month old is yeah. My eighteen month old has really given me a run for my money uh, at the moment too. She, I tweeted both these things, but they're still they're funny enough to repeat. Yesterday, she she's kind of a bruiser. She she moves fast and isn't particularly careful. So yesterday, I'm I'm making coffee and I turn to the the threshold of the kitchen from the living room into the kitchen, and she's sort of wandering from the living room into the kitchen with her eyes closed like giggling and babbling and smiling, having a blast walking with her eyes closed and walked okay. straight into the corner of the fridge oh. <laughs> and sat down and was silent for a moment and then opened her eyes, looked at the fridge with a look of deep betrayal and then looked at me like, how could you let this happen? And then <laughs> burst into tears. Uh, later, uh, yesterday, I'm doing dishes and she and, and my son are playing and. I turn around in time to see her. She's holding like an oblong, one of those oblong styrofoam packages that raw chicken comes in that she's pulled out of the garbage. <laughs> oh no. Uh, and I was, uh, I was pretty at the end of my rope at that point already. So that was, that was sort of, the, that was the straw that, that broke the camel's back so that when my wife got home from work, I was like, honey, you need to take these kids into another space. I will make you dinner, anything you want, but the, these children's need to be away from me. Um, so that was exciting. That was pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, otherwise I've just been uh, grading midterms and trying to start a new uh, dissertation chapter. I turned a chapter in this week. That was hey, exciting. congratulations. Hey, thanks. Sweet. Um, and then, you, you know, you, you do that and you feel good and you turn around, there's one waiting for you right around I, the corner. That's exactly what happened. But, you know, also the, the Dodgers and the Brewers are, are having just one of the best NLCS series I've seen in a long time. And as a, a, you know, a long time 
Milwaukee resident that it's it's always fun to watch the Brewers not suck. So, Amen. you know, that, that'll be old news by the time folks listen to this. But here in the moment, back in time, uh, it's still real exciting. Uh, <laughs> game seven tonight. Oh, that's right. Oh, maybe I'll maybe I'll force the kids to watch it. My my uh, my wife is going to see Bruno Mars play the what do they call that the, the infield at the Formula One races here mm-hmm. in Austin. Um, I, <laughs> my my wife and her siblings uh, bought my father in law tickets to the Formula One races, um, which include general admission tickets to go see the the performances in the evening, which are like Bruno Mars, Britney Spears, and somebody else. Uh, I think f- with full knowledge that. He has no interest in seeing Bruno Mars, Britney Spears, or anybody else. Uh, so they have they have been bequeathed the wristbands to get to go do that. So um, I've meant to get into Formula One racing for years and just have never gotten around to it. Um, did, you, what, did you see the Ron Howard movie uh, with Chris Hemsworth? I did um, not see that rush. one. It's, I, saw, yeah, it's, I saw his his beautiful flowing locks on the on the the poster, but I never did see the movie. Robin, uh, if Robin were here, Robin would make some comment about how uh, if it's not Thor and Chris Hemsworth, uh, she she just has no patience for it. She she she's a big fan of Chris Hemsworth as Thor, but not broadly, which I find hilarious. Yeah, no, that's objectively wrong. Yeah, we've had many conversations about this. In fact, I did just see Thor Ragnarok for the first time, which I loved. So that's mm-hmm. but that's a different conversation. Um, no, that <laughs> R- Rush is the movie is- any good? Uh, yeah, it's. It, I watched it with my roommate Dylan years ago when I still lived in Milwaukee, and was going and expecting it was going to be ex- just as mediocre as mediocre can mediocre. And Ron Howard, uh, his no direction. Dog. I heard you liked mediocre, so I yeah, Ron out. Howard's direction is usually personalityless. Would be how I would describe. No, it. that's exactly that's correct. Yes. Yeah, it's he really actually does. I think. In, and that was an unintentional pun, but sort of inject some of the Formula One ethos into uh, the film. It's 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 shockingly quickly cut by Ron Howard's standards, and very it's an adrenaline fueled movie. You should watch it; it's very have, good. Have either of you ever seen? And I've never seen it. Uh, a, there's a, a 1970s John Frankenheimer movie called Grand Prix. I think with James Caan. No, it's supposed to be like. A, a, a top-notch racing movie, but I've never checked it out. I'm gonna have to like buy the Blu-ray in order to see it because it's not streaming anywhere, as far as I can tell. Yeah, but have you seen Days of Thunder? Boy, I sure have. <laughs> I have. Yeah. <laughs> um, Probably not as good as Grand Prix would be my guess. Nah, yeah, it doesn't seem probable. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, well, that was a bunch of nonsense. So, hey, Ryan. You and I drove down to St. Louis to go to a Girard conference at SLU, and you gave a paper that I thought was mighty helpful in sifting out, you know, both Girardians and Lonerganians uh, have a tendency to think of their master's work as omnicompetent, um, and this is pretty annoying to people who aren't initiate. Um, and I thought your your intervention using some Lonergan stuff um, into Girard and the criticisms of Girard was really helpful in in specifying uh, sort of precisely where Girard's critiques have their competence. Um, so I was hoping that this week you'd kind of walk us through what you were doing with that. And um, I know uh, Ryan or Brian, rather, you have um, many a Girardian thought. So. Maybe you guys can have a little back and forth once you get through the the main beats there. Yeah, I mean, like like so many folks, um, you know, I I was exposed to Rene Girard in college. Um, you know, I had to read some section from uh, Violence in the Sacred, I think, uh, for a for a class, and you know, was very struck by and and. Um, was excited about the sort of structure of mimetic theory and, um, you know, the, the whole scheme about, uh, about myth and, and cult, the whole theory of culture that you get <clears throat> in Girard's, especially earlier work. Um, and then I just sort of finished college and the book sat on the shelf and, and it wasn't 
uh, didn't think about it a lot. But then I, I started noticing later on that there was this Lonergan-Gerard dialogue led in large part by Bob Doran's work, but also, you know, uh, Mark Miller and, and others had, um, were really sort of pushing on this, this uh, Lonergan-Gerard dialogue. And I remember, uh, I think I was actually sitting in a class with, with Bob Doran and um, going through theology and the dialectics of history. And I remember th- going through the sections on the dialectic of community thinking, oh, okay, well, this, this, this actually is the, the kind of map that points us to those areas in which uh, Girardian theory has not just competence, but, but actually I think a kind of singular insight. Yeah. Um, that's, that's almost entirely missing from Lonergan's account. It's complementary with it, but it's, it's, it's really not there in any kind of worked out, sophisticated way. But the, but the other upside of it is, is that the, the other pole of the dialectic specifies those areas in which we really shouldn't expect Girardian theory to um, be able to make a massive intervention because it's not, it's not really about the, the data that are relevant theory. Uh, and so I wrote it up and and um, pitched it to Grant Kaplan over at SLU for the Colloquium on Violence and Religion and got to go down there and present it to the Girardians. And I'm not sure that they got it. Um, there were a lot of people in the room, though. Um, yeah. So so the 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 basic problem that I was I was trying to look at in Girard is to say, you know, it's sort of become fashionable to critique Girard for a lot of reasons. Um, after all the enthusiasm that he was, was received with by theologians over the years, uh, it's, you started seeing more, um, more rigorous critiques of Girard coming out of, of theological circles, especially around his notion of sacrifice. Um, his, his account of sacrifice as it's, as a sort of mediated, at least up until the late eighties, um, very much saw sacrifice almost in purely negative terms. And uh, his, his critiques of, of religion, his critiques of cultic ritual um, were in, at their heart sort of critiques of the notion of sacrifice. He sort of saw sacrifice as the, the sort of cultic element within uh, sort of mimetic structure. So can, can you do just like the beats on um, the, the, the sort of core of mimetic theory and then link it to the stuff on, on sacrifice? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, Gerard, uh, you know, he really has his, his um, sort of scholarly origins in, in um, anthropology and literature and um, especially the, the analysis of, of ancient myths and things like that. And uh, one of the things he noticed in the course of his, his studies of these, these different traditions is that there's a, there's a kind of archetypal structure that's really at the heart of a lot of, of, um, of religion and at a lot of mythic literature. And it, and it has its origins in what he calls um, mimetic desire. So you have a, you have a desire that occurs. You have some object that, that is the term of that desire, but then you have this mimesis wherein uh, the desire of one is imitated um, by another. And anytime you have this um, imitating kind of desire, you have rivalry. And so a rivalry emerges because a singular sort of appetitive object is, is, um, desired by multiple parties and um this anyone who has more than one toddler in their house has seen this yeah exactly yeah right and and they're they're borrowed desires right that's what makes them mimetic um and so this births rivalry and rivalry births violence um and violence is sort of cyclical uh you have um sort of occurrences and counter occurrences that keep recurring and um, this destroys um, civic and, and uh, social structure. 
And so you need society, needs some means of resolving this uh, repetitive pattern of violence and counterviolence that emerges because of mimetic rivalry. And so Girard says that um, what, what, human be- what human groups tend to do is uh, scapegoat. And so they select, really kind of at random, um, a party onto whom the frustrations and violence of the whole community can be poured out on sort of in a single instance. Um, and so rather than the, the um, sort of ping pong ball of violence being forever bounced back and forth between the, the two desirers, um, all of the violence of the whole community is poured out onto this one scapegoat. Um, and that sort of breaks the cycle, at least for a while. Um, but new desires occur, and so new forms of mimesis, and so new patterns of violence. And so communities and cultures are always in the process of trying to resolve um, the violence that has emerged due to mimetic rivalry and in so doing also kind of setting the conditions for new emergences in the future. But these these scapegoating mechanisms, as Gerard calls it, they also sort of accrue um, cultic meaning. Um, And so they they become reflected, this, this... uh, dynamic in society becomes reflected within the myths and religious practices and rituals of that community. And so um, cultic sacrifice, uh, as you see in most ancient religions, Girard takes as um, evidence of uh, this, this more fundamental um, social dynamic of uh, mimetic violence and, and scapegoat mechanisms. Um, so that's, that's sort of the the basic beats of, of medic theory. And so that when you take, if you read, read any Girard in college, that's largely what you're going to learn. Um, Girard takes this to be kind of a theory of everything. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a theory of the origins of culture, but it's also everything else. And so, you know, it's not for nothing that Girardians tend to see mimetic theory as having a kind of special explanatory significance to you know, just about every sort of set of human phenomena. Um, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to sort of understand what were, what were the, the actual human data to which this theory really applied. Because there are, the, there are these other critiques of Girard, not just about uh, sacrifice, but, but actually critiques of Girard that are about politics. And on this score, you get um, somewhat interesting uh, collaborators. So, for instance, in the in in the in 1990, you had a uh, colloquium on Girard's work in uh, South America, where uh, liberation theologians, Leonardo Boff in particular, and and a host of other sort of major intellectuals from South America um, had this colloquium with Girard. And one of the, 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 the critiques that kept emerging from this was that both that mimetic theory was too dark, right? That its account of human nature had no, um, no way of talking about uh, the solidarity of victims. Um, but also that it wasn't generative of a liberative politics. And in fact, really wasn't generative of a politics at all. And, um, and interestingly, in the same year, uh, Theology, John Milbank's Theology and Social Theory was published. And in that work, Milbank offers a very similar critique of Girard, that uh, Girard's, Girard's thought um, is a sort of purely negative and it, and it can't resolve itself into any kind of positive social or political vision. And one, one of the reasons for this is that um, the, the is, is a category he talks about of he talks about it in terms of distance, right? That, that the sort of, the closer you are to someone, the more your mimetic rivalry with them intensifies. Yeah, um, that's right. So, right, so that people who are fairly remote from you, this mimetic rivalry thing will get going, but they're, um, they're sort of not within reach and so, the, and so they're not as, as proximate to the object that's mediating it. 
And so uh, it doesn't get too hot. But if you are um, in the same family or in the same academic department or something, uh, you know, stuff gets real hot and, uh, and the, the sort of propensity for violence of various kinds gets going. So, so if the idea of a politics is going to be about people sort of drawing together, and especially if your politics is a vision of sort of solidaristic politics, um, well, Girard's theory seems to say, look, um, as you try to draw together to try and address political problems, you're pouring gasoline on the fire. Yeah, that's, that's right. So, so, so in addition to these critiques of sacrifice, there are these critiques of Girard as, as um, not just apolitical, but, but sort of clo- forestalling or closing off the possibility of a politics. Now, where Lonergan comes in is to be able to say, look, um, politics is not the only dynamic of social cohesion and organization. Um, it is one pole of a dialectical structure in human cooperation. And it, it belongs to the pole of what Lonergan calls practical intelligence. And so this has to do with politics, it has to do with economics, has to do with technology. But the other pole of the dialectic community is not about politics, but is uh, about intersubjectivity. Uh, what Lonergan and Method and Theology will call the prior we. Um, this, um, this spontaneous uh, felt connection that human beings have, not because they've built it through some sort of political process, uh, but they've discovered somehow that it's always already there, always already operative uh, in them. And so it's, it just seemed to me kind of obvious then that... Uh, what you could do with the dialectic of community is use it as a way of clarifying those, those elements of human sociality that mimetic theory had a kind of special relevance to. And at the same time, clarify those additional data that it just really wasn't designed to explain. And so for, for, for my argument, I basically said, look, what mimetic theory really does is it gives you this full-throated analysis of the, the sort of dark side of intersubjectivity. That intersubjectivity isn't all uh, sort of light. Uh, it isn't all sort of um, love and... Uh, Mommy smile. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's this dark side. There's this, this underside to intersubjectivity. That, that isn't, uh, you know, Lonergan's example of sort of reaching out to catch a falling child. It isn't that. <laughs> it's a different kind of intersubjectivity. And that's what Gerard gives you um, maybe the best analysis of. That he gets to the heart of what's, uh, what's wrong with human intersubjectivity. Um, he, he names and explains the mechanisms that operate within the the darkness of inner subjectivity. And he explains why violence is a kind of inevitable result of human inner subjectivity. Um, now, to critique Girard for saying he doesn't have a politics once you, once you make this move is sort of to miss the point. Because politics, properly speaking, doesn't belong to the same, um, same sort of phenomenon as inner subjectivity. It's, a, it's about a different sort of modality of, of human cooperation that's not, that's not primarily intersubjective, but practical. And so it's, it's about uh, the, the uh, flows of practical intelligence within a community that make possible goods of order, as we've talked about in earlier episodes. So, so I sort of thought, all right, if I, if I get, have this heuristic structure from Lonergan that is able to make this distinction between intersubjectivity on the one hand and the practical intelligence of politics on the other, then I have some sort of means of organizing the data on human cooperation. And then I can look at Girard and say, Girard has this this singular applicability to diagnose the the darker dynamics of intersubjectivity. 
And if he doesn't, and if that theory doesn't actually have anything to say about politics or doesn't, doesn't itself generate um, a political theory, well, that's just fine. That's not a, uh, that, that's, that's not a knock on the theory itself. It's simply to say that what, the the, what mimetic theory is, is a theory about intersubjectivity and not a theory about political orders um, or about sort of the human good as it's conceived by practical intelligence. And so the, the sort of Milbankian critique or even some of the liberation theology critiques of Girard might, might be entirely true, but they also just might not matter that much <laughs> um, because, because mimetic theory is not uh, intended to give you a theory of political orders. It's intended to give you a theory of intersubjectivity. Yeah, that's interesting. I, uh, this is a little bit off the Girard thing, but on the, the Lonergan piece, the distinction between intersubjectivity and, and the social or political. Um, last night after we got the kids to bed, uh, my wife and I sat down and we, we finally finished watching, which we started a few days ago, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, documentary. Yeah. yeah. Which is a delight if you get a chance. It sure is. So I haven't seen it. Um, but, but towards the end, they, they address uh, briefly her friendship with Antonin Scalia. Huh. Um, and they have some video of them on some panel, you know, talking about their friendship. Uh, and, and Scalia says something to the effect of, um, you know, she, she's got a great sense of humor and she likes opera. You know, what is there not to like? And there's a pause. And then he says, except all of her thoughts about the Constitution. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and then they cut to one of, uh, one of, one of uh, RBG's uh, political and um, sort of uh, activist acquaintances who's saying, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit mystified by her friendship with Scalia. They seem to get on fine. Um, but I don't, I don't have uh, right-wing friends. Um, and, and, you know, and you hear sort of full-throated versions of this, right? Where like, well, look, if somebody's politics is inimical to like my survival and well-being, um, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be buddies with them. Uh, yeah. but it seems, but it seems to me that in, but that the distinction that you're making via, uh, Dorn and Lonergan is at least a way of making sense of their friendship, right? That these are two people who on a, on a sort of foundation of intersubjectivity, uh, have a kind of kinship with one another. Um, and in, and in fact, maybe because they are so intellectually immersed in the sort of fundamental structures of our political ordering in the United States, um, that they're able to, um, that in fact, because of their deep engagement with it, they're able to uh, consider it something that's not, they're, they're able to not conflate it with their intersubjective relationship, right? That, um, that indeed being so lost in their thoughts about these things, right? I mean, you know, RBG is sort of famous for going out and doing things all day and then going home at the end of the day, eating dinner and then staying up till four working, um, which is a little, as someone who just needs a nap all the time, is a little hard to fathom. Yeah, that exhausts um, me. But, but anyway, but I, I just think that that's, um, that's when you elide that distinction, um, you actually can't make sense of a bunch of human yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's a kind of instance of uh, uh not of them having intersubjective rivalry, right? Which you could imagine that they they very possibly could have, um, but actually have it functioning. But the but that the distinction operates both in the sort of um arguably sort of healthy operation of intersubjectivity in their sort of um amicable fellow feeling. Uh but also then in the the negative cases. Um which, you know, that's, that's really something, particularly in a time where uh, sort of uh, rancorous affectivity driven by negative partisanship shapes so much of our political discourse. And, and in fact, makes, so, uh, makes political decision-making impossible uh, in a bunch of fronts, right? Without sort of absolute power or something. Um, anyway, I, that's a, a bit of an aside, but I just, I think that that distinction has sort of, has power uh, beyond the Girard question, and just to say something about um, the internal structure of fully human living. Um, oh, definitely. I mean, the thing—the thing that I thought it it adds to to Lonergan's analysis. Is, you know, Lonergan tends to, when he's giving examples, at least he tends to have a fairly rosy view of intersubjectivity. That is true. Um, and and while that and the 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 
Ginsburg Scalia case is a sort of example of that, right? Um, but but there's this other there's this other element, right? There's this other di- intersubjective dynamic at work in in human living that um, that isn't rosy. Well, and you can imagine it working the other way, right? People who have a unified practical vision of the way things should be ordered and structured, um, but who can't work together. Um, in fact, who can't yeah, work it's, together? You know, the, it's 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 the the uh, all the other Republican senators who hate Ted Cruz, you know, Lindsey Graham saying, you know, somebody shot him on the Senate floor. No one would care, but they all vote together as a block. Right. Right. So they, it doesn't stop them from, uh, from cooperating politically, even though they, they all hate the guy. Boy, I, I, I just, I, I'm going to come out and say, I cannot wait to vote for Beto O'Rourke. I, just, <laughs> I can't say that loudly and often enough how I just, Oh man, I can't wait. I don't even, I, I have truly zero political foothold in Texas. And I have been watching that race with just absolute fascination. I, my mom and I were texting last night about uh, how just thoroughly fascinating and uh, impressive Beto O'Rourke's town halls have been because she's watched them from Illinois. Plus he was like, he was like in a band with the guys from the Mars Volta. Yeah, big I, That part I can't even put my, I can't let's, put it in my let's head. Let's not get too anachronistic. At the drive-in, true. That is well, no, true. He, but he wasn't with the he wasn't in the band with the other guys. It was just Cedric and Omar at the time, I think. Yeah, but still, we got to like pre-Volta. Yeah, uh, well pre-Volta. Uh, well, I'm just saying it would be if I said at the drive-in, <laughs> it might be confusing. They might think it was those losers who were in Sparta. Well, oh wow, that just got heated. Hey, Brian, say intersubjectivity things. You wrote a was, dissertation on this. Yeah, I was I'm just yeah, I'm just saying Sparta is bad. That's all. I, I, I saw them live about 15 years ago. Anyway, moving I, on. Yeah, man, I don't, uh, I, I don't think the Mars Volta wrote an album equal to In Casino Out. So that's a oh, different conversation. Wow, fighting words. Okay, we'll, yeah. we'll deal with this one off air. Um, yeah, all right. <laughs> um, okay, we'll, we'll, uh, we're a relationship in command. But uh, okay, we're going we're gonna to hop into intersubjectivity. What's, so my dissertation, for those who are not, totally involved in the inside baseball of our friendship group or of Lonergan conversation, um, which are intimately overlapping, <laughs> uh, is entitled An Exigence for the Other, Exploring Intersubjectivity Through Lonergan, Levinas, and Girard. And so intersubjectivity, as Lonergan would define it, because I do think it, it's a very unique definition of intersubjectivity, that prior we is the only real sort of integrating force in that dissertation. It's not strictly speaking a quote-unquote Lonergan dissertation, strictly speaking a quote-unquote Levinas dissertation, or a quote-unquote Girard dissertation. If such a thing were possible, the, the definition of Lonergan or intersubjectivity that Lonergan gives is the thread that connects all of it. So that prior we, and what I would consider to be an overlooked impact that that prior we has upon the unfolding of salvation history. So progress, decline, and redemption. And so ultimately the, the solution that's presented at the end of the dissertation involves Trinitarian theology, building upon some of Bob Doran's work and Lonergan's work with the Trinity. The tricky thing, so I have an entire chapter, the third chapter of the dissertation, just devoted to Girard. And the tricky thing about bringing Girard into the conversation is exactly what you guys have already pointed out, which is the precise strength of what Girard gives to that conversation is that he's able to point out negatives to inner subjectivity that Lonergan's examples and frankly, Levinas's examples don't often give. There's uh, in Lonergan that you have the example of reaching out spontaneously for a falling child prior to any thematization. In Levinas, you have the discussion of an intersubjective exhortation presented pre-thematically in the face of the other that I can reject, but that if I'm being truly, fully, authentically human, I don't. And although Levinas will certainly talk a whole lot about the Holocaust and about the ways that intersubjectivity can go awry, that's not where the, uh, the bulk of his examples fall. 
but and so Girard's discussion of uh, what is ultimately pre-thematic, so mimetic rivalry prior to full understanding of what's going on or formulation of what's going on, gives an interesting dark correlate to their analyses of intersubjectivity, and frankly goes a long way towards explaining why, if we're all bound together in this prior we, and all other things being equal, uh, we are spontaneously linked to one another, why things go so badly. And he, he's one interesting window into that. But what's, what's fascinating is, independent of the political critique of Girard, there are also a lot of theological, anthropological critiques that are leveled at him. And Part of what's so fascinating about the example you gave, John, of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, Scalia friendship is there are operators in human living that have to do with relationality that aren't reducible to intersubjectivity. And so a very large part of my dissertation involves figuring out, uh, or I guess teasing out, because I frankly, I think Bob Doran and Lonergan went a long way towards figuring it out but unpacking a little more fully the way that the inner subjective connects to the interpersonal and finds its culmination in the interpersonal. So that spontaneous pre-thematic prior we, which links us prior to any thematization, is integrated in the ways that we, through our conscious intentional decisions and through those higher integrating and operating forces of love and of mutual self-mediation and of grace's interaction with our relationality are also linked together in a way that is uh, the culmination of the, uh, the underpinning, overarching, and accompanying of inner subjectivity in our cognitional structure. And so what's interesting is when I was doing research on Girard, I came to the same conclusion that a lot of people have come to about Girard, which is Girard really doesn't understand grace all that well and doesn't really have a way of accounting for how someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg or someone like Scalia could be friends with somebody that the schedules of probability of inner subjectivity would probably uh, preclude them from being friends with because they're outside of our immediate, they're outside of, say, Ruth Bader Ginsburg immediate political circle or Scalia's immediate political circle. They're not family members. Their friends probably don't overlap a whole lot. But yet, in an almost inexplicable way, they resonate on the same frequency, even if they disagree about basically everything. And uh, so I have a personal example. Uh, Eric Mabry, who's a friend of the show and good friends of all of us, and I uh, would basically consider each other to be brothers, even though we disagree about a great many things. And people ask us all the time, how the heck are you guys friends? Because you're so different. Your interests are so different. Your life histories are very different. And the only explanation I can ever really give is grace. And the operator in our friendship isn't reducible to just our inner subjectivity. It's a higher elevation of our inner subjectivity. And so whenever I talk about Girard, or whenever I talk about Levinas in relationship to Lonergan's account of both just anthropology broadly, but particularly of the most relational components of uh, our, our anthropology, the caveat that I always have to give is that I think that Levinas does a really good job of articulating the way uh, that which needs to be elevated and can be elevated intersubjectively. So our uh, spontaneous, uh, the, the spontaneous ethical vector of sort of our inner subjectivity that is always already present, but we can choose to reject uh, the reply to an intersubjective exigence in the face of the other. Girard speaks really well to what needs to be healed 
by grace's interpersonal elevation of inner subjectivity. And so even as foundational to political civic discourse on the level of two people talking together in a room who happen to have a ton of divergences politically from one another, I think there needs to be a recognition that just in terms of those two subjects talking, there are also higher operative forces coming into the conversation. And so you need to pinpoint on both a geopolitical sort of communal level what the relevance of Girard's work is. But I also think in terms of two people together in a room, you got to be able to point to, okay, what he's talking about is the specifically intersubjective and frankly, the darkly intersubjective side of things. But there are also layers that need to be unpeeled relative to how grace can function in and through the face of the other. And this is a, a kind of broader problem in how grace is discussed theologically um, more broadly. So oftentimes, there's a, there's a kind of, um, there's a tendency to think of grace as something that we're still waiting for. Yeah. Right. That we're going to do an analysis of natural structures. Uh, and then uh, grace would be something that we hold in sort of analytic abeyance. Um, and, and so in that case, what you end up overlooking is the, the, what I think is one of the most promising, but also most challenging claims about Christianity, which is uh, things should be worse than they are. <laughs> right. Grace is at work in the world. And if that's true, then things should be worse than they are. Um, and so, yeah, you, you do have a kind of missing um, locus in Girard's work for, um, yeah, we have an account of like why things are bad, but what we don't have an account of is why aren't things worse? Um, why, why has there been development at all? And, and I mean, because mimetic desire is, is mobilizing, you do get a sense of, um, right, like why things get accomplished and stuff moves forwards and communities are able to organize themselves and the scapegoating, scapegoating mechanism is able to mitigate for a time some of the destructive yeah. impulses. But, um, but again, yeah, all, all of those are, um, are mitigations uh, or sort of epiphenomenal mobilizations. And they aren't a complete explanation in that regard. Um, and, and that, uh, and, and part of what's going on there, one is that the, as you said, the operator, right, the sort of principal or agent of why things aren't worse than they are, uh, is supernatural. But, but another part of it too is, is just, um, it's hard, it's hard to look at how bad so many things are and feel justified in having the faith and hope that would look at it and still see um, where things, if they, you know, if they aren't yet uh, healed in perfection by the, the uh, eschatological coming of God's love into history, um, you know, they could be worse. Um, Though, I, I mean, Jars doesn't have, um, he certainly doesn't have a, a sort of metaphysically differentiated account of these dynamics, but, you know, part of the reason that theologians have been so drawn to Girard over the last several decades is precisely because in addition to giving this, <clears throat> excuse me, analysis of the scapegoat mechanism and of mimetic structure as the sort of um, foundation and origin of culture, he also gives an analysis of the New Testament. And his analysis of the New Testament, his analysis of, of Christ, is that this is the undoing of the scapegoat mechanism? That this is this is the the thing that um, shouldn't happen, but yet seems to have happened. That uh, the di the the intersubjective dynamics that give you mimetic structure that lead to the scapegoat that uh, organize uh, cultic life. Um, all of these things are um, undone through the cross. Right. This is why so many uh, theologians then have latched on to Girard specifically on the issue of soteriology, 
because they find ways of explaining the significance of the cross uh, in in terms of Girardian theory that um, they haven't found in other places. And so it was this very exciting thing to be able to articulate um, a, a sort of um, an account of of um, the cross that was that was different that has sort of different organizing metaphor than exchange or propitiation or or things like that and so you know it's it's not the 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 sort of graced vector is entirely absent in his work i mean i don't no no that's and that's not quite my point my my point either yeah my point is only to say that um and this is not a, a, a criticism that is unique uh to gerard at all so i so i don't i don't want to make it that pointed um but but only to say that the the historical differentials of progress decline and redemption um almost nobody gives a satisfactory account and gerard included of the way in which those differentials are all operative simultaneously oh sure yeah yeah, yeah. um so I, that's all i mean that's really the the main point i'm trying to make there well, and there, there's there's and an Brian's interesting comment though um, in Girardian studies, um, which have, which have seek, sought to complement the sort of negative mimetic elements of Girard with what they call positive mimesis. Yeah, where they where they are trying to draw out um, accounts of imitation that aren't productive of um, mimetic rivalry, but but actually make possible. Um, something like what Brian's calling with something like the interpersonal. Um, and, and Bob Doran's certainly taken this all the way to talk about the imitation of the divine relations in yeah. Trinitarian terms. And so, you know, there, there, there's sort of untapped elements there. Um, but I, but I think what the, the ongoing significance of the dialectic of community is that it keeps you, um, it keeps you paying attention to the right set of data. Uh, and not getting distracted by um, uh, other dynamics that on their own are perfectly important, um, but are not the kind of dynamics that this theory is really um, adequate to address. No, thanks. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that seems to me the, the most central point there. Um, well, thanks, Ryan. Uh, I have no doubt we'll come back to many of these topics again in the future. Um, Brian. You have our treasures old and new. I do, in fact. Uh, yeah, so I am excited to talk about two things that I am working through. And I have to confess, I have not finished reading either my treasure old or my treasure new. So I, everything that I say right now should be taken with the grain of salt that although I'm very much enjoying both of the works I'm working through, I have not finished either of them, so I can't speak to all of the data. The way I tend to read books is I will start reading one, then scramble to read a bunch of other things because I have to prep a paper or a class and scramble to read a bunch of other things and eventually loop my way back. So I, I am part of the way through both of these works. The first of which is Luigi Giussani's The Religious Sense, which was originally published in 1966. And now, as the collected works of Jusani are being put out by McGill, uh, the, the most recent translation of it was reprinted in 2015. Uh, the first uh, English translation and definitive edition came out from McGill, Queens in 1997. I was introduced to this, although I, I mean, I had heard of the book, but introduced to sort of its relevance to what I would do by Ryan Dunn's at Lonergan on the Edge this year because he was talking about how he's been using it in his undergrad intro to theology class. It's been a useful integrator for him in order to sort of cut through some of the biases that both the super, super religious students and the students who are less inclined to talk about religion have coming into the class. Because what Jusani is doing in the book is after having taught a bunch of high schoolers and a bunch of college students, himself reacting against the sort of muckiness of the discourse. And he's, he's trying to figure out what the common factor that leads human beings to order themselves towards the religious is, that's common to all religions and common even to those who don't profess a particular religious tradition. He 
it, it, it's very, very dense prose, but he sort of disentangles the equal and opposite tendencies of what Lonergan would call a naive realist, empiricist way of talking about, okay, so here's how phenomena occur. They, the phenomena must be reducible to uh, the sensorially or sort of logically positivistly descriptive account of how they occur. And therefore, religion is just reducible to how I see it. Or on the other ten, uh, end of the spectrum, uh, an idealist account. And he says, no, actually, there is a drive that's prior to all of those accounts. And that drive, uh, Lonergan would actually call the unrestricted desire to know. Uh, Aristotle would call it the light of age and intellect. Uh, that questioning is itself always already religious. And he walks through how that is, in fact, Case. I can't say much more about it because I haven't read too much more, but I'm really, really enjoying it. Uh, My Treasure New is uh, it's a very different genre and it's got a whole different set of concerns, but it's, it's brand new. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. It's by Brian Flanagan, who is a professor of theology at Marymount University in Virginia. And it's called Stumbling in Holiness, Sin and Sanctity in the Church. It's very apropos at the moment, frankly, and I don't think Brian realized quite the degree to which it would be apropos when he was writing it. I was introduced to the book because I was with Brian at a conference in Toronto put on by Georgetown over the summer on migration, and we started talking about Joseph Kamanchuk's work. We happened to be at the same dinner table. I had met him before, but hadn't seen him in a while. And... I, I mentioned in the episode on the church, the idea that Kamanchik asserts is that the church isn't an it or a them or a she or a he, it's a we. It's a shared meaning that integrates a we. And that is actually one of the linchpins of Brian's book, where he tries both liturgically and from sort of a dogmatic ecclesiological perspective to navigate the way the church is always itself a pilgrim church that is already uh, is is all already always proclaiming that the redemptive event of Christ's life, death, and resurrection has sanctified and has opened up the possibility of salvation for all, and that the church sees itself as a continuation and a result of that salvific mission. But at the same time, the church is at least partially human in its institutional implementation, and human beings screw up very, very badly. And so the not yet element of ecclesiology and soteriology enters into the conversation. And there is actually a decent amount of Lonergan in the book. Kamanchuk factors in very heavily. Brian's trying to tease out, okay, over the course of human, or rather ecclesial history, how do the sort of great thinkers try and tease out this tension of always already and yet not yet in both sanctity and sinfulness? And it, I've, I've enjoyed very much what I've read so far. So go and check that out. That was put out by Liturgical Press, I want to say mid-September. It's brand new. Oh, right on. Well, thanks, Brian. Thanks, Ryan. Um, that's our show. And thanks, John. Oh, hey, indeed. You're welcome. <laughs> no uh, thanks to Robin, who isn't here. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, we can't wait to have her back. So you can find the show on Twitter at Systematic Pod. If you want to send us an email, we haven't gotten a single email yet. Um, so if you want to, if you want to clog our email box, uh, it's systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you know, if you're enjoying these episodes and you listen to them regularly and you think you know somebody who would also enjoy listening to them and who would listen to them regularly, would you share us on Twitter or Facebook or by email or word of mouth, what have you? Um, we'd, it would really help out the show. You can find us, if you haven't already, on Apple Podcasts while you're there. If you want to rate uh, the show or leave a review, you can definitely subscribe. That would be great, too. Uh, our intro and outro music, as always, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Thank you, Trent Reznor, and your Creative Commons license. Um, thanks to Brian, who's always doing great production work on the show, putting that music on the front end and the back end, uh, editing out 
ums and long pauses and stuff like that for us. Of which there are many. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're trying to think carefully, I guess. Anyway. S- systematically, some would say. You might say. Yeah, what you one might say. Uh, in any case, thanks for that work. And finally, as always, be responsible. Be responsible.